Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Doesn't matter who you are, who you think you are, who you're perceived to be, God commands you to repent. Why? Because there's a day he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And this is, um, this is something that, you know, we need to be reminded of ourselves. And, you know, there, there are times and places where we need to remind other people of this as well. There's a judgment day coming. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, in a message titled, Paul Among the Philosophers. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Paul is just presenting to them that there is a God who made everything and who, since he made everything, he's not going to be dwelling in one of these temples that people have made. Secondly, he tells them that he is the sustainer of life. Look at the next verse. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life and breath and all things. So, so Paul presents God as a God who, you see, among the Greeks, the gods needed to be worshipped. And if you didn't worship a God, then you, you know, could get in trouble with that God. But Paul says, no, this God who doesn't dwell in temples, neither does he need to be worshipped. He doesn't need anything. See, God doesn't call us to worship him because he needs to be worshipped. God calls us to worship him because we need to worship him. Because we're going to worship something. Every person worships something. And if you worship anything but the true God, it's detrimental to you. Some people say, oh, well, you know, this God of the Bible, he's on such a big ego trip. He wants everybody to worship him. God doesn't need anybody to worship him. God has no deficiency in his nature. Like, man, I don't really feel good about myself today because not that many people are worshiping you know, I'm looking out at the churches this morning, and they're not that crowded. That's going to be a bad day. That's not God. God doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from anybody. As Paul says here, he gives life and breath uh, and all things. And then thirdly, look at what he says. He basically says that he is the ruler over all of the nations. And so in verses 26 through 28, and he made from one blood, or um, the other translations read, and he made from one man, speaking of Adam, either, either way it's saying basically the same thing. He made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of all the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So God 
All of the nations belong to him, all of the people. The world started with one man. And from that one man came that first woman. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. Paul believed in Adam and Eve. He said that's, that's where it all started. And all the nations that have spread out through the world, they came from there. Basically, God, God, he owns the nations. He is the Lord over the nations. And then he says as well that God is the father of humanity. And that's what he says. He says we are his offspring. Now, here's a really radical thing that Paul does right here. When, when Paul says that uh, in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his, also his offspring, Paul is quoting from two Greek poets here. So again, you see, in, in the synagogue, what's Paul going to do? He's going to launch from the, the scriptures. He's going to launch from the, from the text of what we would call the Old Testament, and he's going to preach Christ there. But here among the Greeks who have no relationship with the Old Testament, Paul is actually bringing in their own poets, he says. So what Paul is doing, again, he's redeeming certain aspects of culture where he finds that there's a truth in the culture that he can take and use to proclaim the greater truth of Christ. Paul does it. See, again, some people would say, no, you can't do that. That, that's bad because that stuff is bad. You don't want to be quoting. But that wasn't Paul's method. Now, here's the really crazy thing where it says here, for we are his offspring. The poem that Paul was quoting from, the reference was to Zeus. We are the offspring of Zeus. And so Paul took something that was even radical because, of course, in the Greek mind, Zeus was the, the great God. So Paul just takes this one statement that we are his offspring and he's already told them there's a God who created everything. There's a God who sustains everything. And yes, we are, all of us are the offspring of this God. We're all um, his, his creation. And so he is the father of all humanity. And so then he says this, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So that's his point. How could a stone produce you or me? How could a metal object produce us? Obviously, it can't. So we shouldn't think of God like this. That's what he's saying. Now, the last thing he says about this unknown God is in verses 30 and 31, he says that he is the judge of the world. And so look what he says. Truly, these times of ignorance, where all this idolatry proliferated, God overlooked. God overlooked in the sense that God did not bring the judgment that they deserved. He, he overlooked it. But he says, now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father, and now he is the judge. Brilliant. 
He's talking to the intellectual elites. He's talking to the, the cultural influencers. And he's basically presenting to them the true God. And what does he go on to say? He says that he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So here's now where Paul brings Jesus into the picture. Now, earlier in the marketplace, he obviously he was speaking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. But now he, he takes them through a, a lesson on the reality of the one true God and that this one true God is ultimately the judge, but the judge is a man and it's a man that was raised from the dead. So, so God has designated who the judge is by doing something for him that, that has not happened for any other person. This is the way God designates who uh, the judge is. He raises him from the dead. And of course, this would be obvious. The, the answer is obvious, right? It's Jesus that he is referring to here. But notice in the... <laughs> In the, um, the story here, when Paul says that he raised him from the dead, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So it's like, in a sense, Paul didn't even really get to finish the message. But he obviously had follow-up later, and we are told that he had a, an immediate response from a man named Dionysius, who was an Areopagite. So he was one of the philosophers, this man Dionysius. And then there was a woman named Damaris, and then there were others. Now, some people say, there's two different opinions about the preaching here in Acts 17. Some people say Paul made a huge mistake by trying to be culturally relevant, and it's proven by the fact that there were very few converts. They, so they, they said, you know, that this, was, this was wrong on Paul's part. And, and they follow up on it and say, you see, after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth. And then in Corinth, he said to the Corinthians, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, they say that Paul is kind of subtly saying, you know, I, I tried a different method in Athens. It didn't work. So now I'm just going to go back to the Christ and him crucified a guy named uh, William Ramsey, that was his theory. He came up with that theory, and a lot of people have jumped on it and said, so Paul made a mistake in Acts 17. We shouldn't follow his example there. We just need to stick with quoting the scripture and not worry about cultural references. Other people see Acts 17 as a great model of how you connect with your culture. And I, I tend to see it that way as well. I don't see it as Paul having made a mistake. They say, well, Paul didn't even, he didn't even really preach the cross. Well, he must have, because you can't really talk about a resurrection unless somebody's dead, right? And what people fail to realize is this is not a thorough word-for-word -word account of everything that Paul said. This is Luke's summary of the essence of what Paul said there. So, anyway, 
as we look at this, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because judgment day is coming. And that judgment day is universal. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. So it's universal. The living and the dead, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, it's all going to be a level, leveled playing field. God, God's going to judge the whole world. Secondly, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. God's judgment will be a righteous judgment. All secrets will be revealed. The thoughts and the intents of the heart will be made known. There, there's no possibility when God judges of any kind of a miscarriage of justice. It's going to be a perfectly righteous judgment. And also, it's certain. It's universal, it's righteous, and it's certain. The day has been set and the judge has been appointed. God tells us that right here. It's certain. And although the day has not yet been disclosed, the identity of the judge has been. And the identity of the judge is the one that God raised from the dead, who is Jesus. You know, I have often, I love this passage, as a matter of fact, and I have often thought if I ever, you, know, you kind of fantasize about standing before different groups of people, and what would you say? You know, if you, uh, if you were brought before you know, the, I don't know, you know, the Supreme Court, or if you were brought before the Congress or, you know, whatever other august body you might be brought before, you know, what would you say? And I've looked at this passage and I thought, man, I would say this. This, this, this just cuts through everything. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Doesn't matter who you are, who you think you are, who you're perceived to be. God commands you to repent. Why? Because there's a day he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And this is, um, this is something that, you know, we need to be reminded of ourselves. And, you know, there, there are times and places where we need to remind other people of this as well. There's a judgment day coming. You know, we live in a time when people just have completely dismissed that from their mind, right? And even in the church, Today, there, there, are, there are Christians who say, well, you know, there, there isn't really a judgment that's coming. That's, that's the wrong view of God. God is love. Yes, God is love. There's no question about it. But God is just. He's holy. He's righteous. And he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And Jesus is that judge. So in looking at Paul's method and his message, he was brilliant. And I, I want to kind of finish things up today by, uh, as I said, a, making an appeal. Because like I said in the beginning, not everybody could have done what Paul did. I mean, I think in my mind of, uh, you know, putting Peter in that context there or, or putting, uh, you know, whoever it might have been, one of the other uh, uh, of the 12 apostles. And, and Paul was really the person, his background, his education, his natural abilities in the sense of his mental capacities and so forth. 
those, those were all factors in his ability to, to be able to present this message to this group of people at the time. So I, I want to read something from John Stott on that very thing. And John Stott was, he, he was a person who thought a lot about these kinds of things. He passed away some years back. Uh, he was one of the leading Anglican evangelicals in the world throughout his generation. Uh, he was at one time the, um, he was actually the, the chaplain to the royal family for some years. But listen to what he said. And my point is this, Paul was uniquely equipped to do what he did. And there are people today who have the same kinds of abilities that are maybe not yet fully developed, but they need to recognize that those abilities are there because God wants to bring them out and use them in these types of ways. So he says this, he says, one cannot help admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal facility to religious people in the synagogue, to casual passers-by in the city square, and to highly sophisticated philosophers, both in the Agora and when they met in council. Today, the nearest equivalent to the synagogue is the church, the place where religious people gather. There is still an important place for sharing the gospel with churchgoers, God-fearing people on the fringe of the church who may attend services only occasionally. So that's the equivalent of the synagogue. The equivalent of the uh, Agora is, um, this will vary in different parts of the world. It may be a park, a city square, a street corner. It could be a marketplace, a pub, a cafe, a coffee bar, a student cafeteria, wherever people meet uh, when they are at leisure. He says, there is a need for gifted evangelists who can make friends and gossip the gospel in such informal settings as these. As for the Areopagus, he says this, it has no precise equivalent in the contemporary world. Perhaps the nearest is the university, where many of the country's intelligentsia are to be found. Neither church evangelism nor street evangelism would be uh, effective for them. Instead, we should develop, here's his suggestion, home evangelism in which there is a free discussion, agnostics anonymous groups in which no holds are barred, and uh, lecture evangelism which contains a strong apologetic content. He says there is an urgent need for more Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ not only as lecturers, but also as authors, journalists, dramatists, uh, broadcasters, script writers, producers, personalities, and as artists and actors who use a variety of art forms in which to communicate the gospel. All these can do battle with contemporary non-Christian philosophies and ideologies in a way which resonates with thoughtful modern men and women, and so at least gain a hearing for the gospel by the reasonableness of its presentation. The last thing he says is this, and this is important. Christ calls human beings to humble, but not to stifle their intellect. So I agree with Stott here, and I think that this is something that we need to consider. Some people are 
gifted in ways that other people aren't and are going to be able to have an impact in places that other people will not have even really the opportunity. So Paul set, uh, God sets up this amazing opportunity for Paul, but obviously Paul's the guy to do it. I mean, this is the Areopagus. This is Athens is the intellectual center of the world. And this, this group, these are the guys. But God has fashioned Paul. Paul said that from, uh, he saw himself as set apart for the gospel from his mother's womb. So all of his background, all of his culture, all of his education, all of those things, Paul saw that all of this was part of what God was doing to prepare him. And you know, that's true with us too. And I say that because sometimes we get wrong ideas as Christians. We get the wrong ideas sometimes when we become Christians and we think, well, you know, yes, I did this and I've been gifted to do that. But, you know, of course, God doesn't want me doing that anymore. And obviously, if it's sinful, he doesn't. But there are, are certain things that God wants to take and redeem and use those things for his glory. So I am appealing to you younger and I, I, I'm not so much appealing to my generation because I already know my brain is kind of going in reverse. Uh, it's got all the information it can take, and now it's just, it's just deleting a bunch of stuff. So. <laughs> but for you, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Uh, but for you, that you still have capacity. You can still um, use your mind for God. For the service of God, he gave you that for his purpose. You know, many, many, many years ago, there was an 18-year-old young lady who went off to an evangelical college, but she found that in her biblical courses, they were being taught by an extremely liberal professor who was doing his best to undermine the faith of the students. That happens, you know, unfortunately sometimes. But that's what was happening to her. And she was desperate for answers. And she was like, you know, how can, I, how can I get some assurance? And how can I respond back to the professor? And she was put in touch with a, a young guy. She was 18. He was 28. But he had, you know, one of those guys with a brain. And he had gone off and educated himself and become a, a capable defender of the faith. And when she got into contact with him. It, it really helped her tremendously to navigate those waters with that uh, liberal professor. You know, many a young person has had their faith destroyed in a classroom by a liberal professor. But she was able to be helped and strengthened. That 18-year-old was my wife, Cheryl. That 28-year-old was Don Stewart. And so, you know, you look at how God took Don as a young guy who he had gifted with a, a brilliant brain. And he took that seriously. And he prepared himself. And all the way to this very day, God's using him in that regard. So this is important stuff. Join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. Hi, I want to take a minute and tell you about a fantastic book on the subject of the grace of God. This is one of the greatest topics that we could ever study and we could ever come to really thoroughly understand. God's grace. God's grace is what saves us. God's grace is what 
carries us through life and God's grace is what will ultimately lead us home. And my wife, Cheryl Broderson, she has written an amazing book on grace. It's called A Woman's Battle for Grace. And I would like to recommend this, not just to our women listeners, although it's sort of specifically for women, but it's a little more general on grace. So I think any of you men that would be interested in the topic, you would be blessed by this book as well. So it's called A Woman's Battle for Grace, and it's by Cheryl Broderson. And I want to recommend that you get it and read it, and I guarantee that you'll be blessed by it. Again, this month's resource is a book titled A Woman's Battle for Grace by Cheryl Broderson. You can order the book A Woman's Battle for Grace by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book A Woman's Battle for Grace by Cheryl Broderson to help you experience the power of God's grace within your life. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Acts. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.